Hello, I'm Alex Akavon, and you're listening to May It Please the Court. I have to tell you, as I said, I've been going through an evolution on this issue. Um, I've always been adamant that uh, gay and lesbian uh, Americans should be treated fairly and equally. At a certain point, I've just concluded that, um, for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that uh, I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. There was a special type of jubilation in the air at the first gay pride parade after the decision in Lawrence versus Texas. The right to privately engage in homosexual activity was now a fundamental right, protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. But despite this victory, one glaring gay rights issue still lingered. As of the day the court decided Lawrence in 2003, not one state recognized same-sex marriage. But that same year, just a few months after the case was decided, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts determined that same-sex couples had a state constitutional right to marry. This decision triggered a massive counter-reaction. While some states took a similar approach of liberalizing gay marriage laws, either legislatively or judicially, an overwhelming number took measures to definitively outlaw homosexual marriage. In 2004, President George W. Bush ran for re-election using a platform that called for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution to define marriage nationwide as being between one man and one woman. By 2008, when Barack Obama ran against John McCain, both campaigns came out against gay marriage, but both agreed to leave the issue up to individual states. And on the same day that Obama won the presidency, the state of California voted for Proposition 8, which amended its state constitution to definitively forbid same-sex marriage. But then, almost suddenly, public opinion started to change. And by 2012, about 50% of Americans were in favor of same-sex marriage. The clip you heard was just as President Obama's re-election campaign was getting underway. Political strategy aside, it sums up pretty much how the general public had evolved on the issue. And within two years, by 2014, gay marriage popularity had soared. More than half of the states legalized it in a two-year period, and by 2015, only 11 states were left that had laws prohibiting same-sex marriage. That is, until the U.S. Supreme Court got involved. It had been exactly 50 years since the initial recognition of a fundamental right to privacy. Since then, the court had recognized a liberty to marry someone of a different race and the right to engage in homosexual activity. Was it now time to unite those principles? In the final episode of our substantive due process story, the justices must decide whether to expand the legal doctrine and accelerate social progress 
one more time. The American majority opposes gay marriage. Our nation must enact a constitutional amendment to protect marriage in America. Barack Obama nor I support redefining the constitutes marriage. Same-sex marriage is now effectively legal in up to 30 states, and some believe it's a matter of time before it's allowed in the rest of the country. The country's evolving, and I think there's an inevitability. 61% of Americans say gays should be allowed to marry. would seem to suggest the court is not immune to changing attitudes either. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The landmark case of Obergefell versus Hodges was actually not one case, but six lower court cases that the Supreme Court had consolidated. As you might expect, Each of them had to do with a same-sex couple's inability to have their marriage recognized by their state. So the questions for the Supreme Court were whether same-sex couples had a constitutional right to marry, or if not, whether states that don't allow same-sex marriage still have to recognize unions from states that do. And the court deciding these issues had changed significantly in the 12 years since Lawrence versus Texas. Gay rights and abortion had become so political that by this point, presidential nominations pretty much came down to how the justices view the doctrine of substantive due process. In 2005, President George W. Bush had nominated John Roberts to replace the retiring Chief Justice Rehnquist. Later, when Justice Sandra Day O'Connor also stepped down, President Bush nominated Samuel Alito. So two conservatives, albeit one more moderate than the other, were replaced by two more conservatives, keeping the balance generally intact. After President Obama was inaugurated in 2009, two liberal seats opened up, and Obama nominated Sonia Sotomayor to replace Justice Souter, and Elena Kagan to replace Justice John Paul Stephen. By 2015, the situation was pretty clear. Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg, and Breyer, all nominated by Democrats, would vote to legalize same-sex marriage nationwide. Alito, Roberts, Scalia, and Thomas were sure to vote in favor of a state's right to prohibit same-sex marriage. So once again... It all came down to Reagan nominee Anthony Kennedy. Kennedy's interpretation would be the majority's interpretation. But what makes this case particularly remarkable is that it was the first case in our story that took place during the age of social media. By the summer of 2015, Americans were circulating articles on Facebook, arguing over Twitter, and even podcasting about how the Supreme Court of the United States, a.k.a. SCOTUS, would decide the gay marriage issue. But what again got lost in the shuffle of moral arguments was the legal argument at the heart of the entire issue. Does prohibiting same-sex marriage deprive citizens of life, liberty, or property 
without the due process of law. On April 28, 2015, an attorney named Mary Bonauto came to the Supreme Court to argue why it does. And just like Bernard Cohen and Philip Hirschkop, who'd argued from multiple angles in the Loving case, Bonauto pointed to both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. This was both about a fundamental right for everyone and the discrimination of homosexuals. But Chief Justice Roberts was quick to jump in and point out that the institution of marriage has always been defined as being between a man and a woman. And even Justice Kennedy indicated his reservations about disturbing a definition that has existed for millennia. My question is, you're not seeking to join the institution. You're seeking to change what the institution is. The fundamental core of the institution is the opposite sex relationship, and you want to introduce into it a same-sex relationship. Two points on that, Your Honor. To the extent that if you're talking about the fundamental right to marry as a core male-female institution, I think when we look at the 14th Amendment, we know that it provides enduring guarantees and that what we once viewed as the role of women or even the role of gay people is something that has changed in our society. So in a sense, just as the Lawrence Court called out the Bowers Court for not appreciating the extent of the liberty at stake in the same vein here. The question is whether gay people share that same liberty to be able to form family relationships. One one of the problems is when you think about these cases, you think about words or cases, and and the word that keeps coming back to me in this case is is millennia plus time. This definition has been with us for millennia, and it, it... it's very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we, 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 we know better. Well, I don't think this is a question of the court knowing better. When we think about the debate, the place of gay people in our civic society is something that has been contested for more than a century. Justice Kennedy did, however, point out that it was around the same amount of time between Lawrence and Obergefell as it passed between Brown and Loving. The court had legalized interracial marriage 13 years after ending segregation. So maybe they should legalize gay marriage a dozen years after legalizing sodomy. With this parallel in mind, the justices next heard the other side. But whereas once upon a time, court precedents were an obstacle for gay rights advocates, by 2015, prior cases were an asset. So when John Birch got up to refute Mary Bonauto, he had to draw a distinction between a case like Loving and the case at hand. His best shot was to emphasize that every single fundamental rights case that has come before only protected traditional procreative marriage between a man and a woman. But the court's newest justice at the time, Elena Kagan, did not agree that tradition was enough of a reason to deny this fundamental right. Here is a clip of her exchange with Mr. Bursch. We just said there's a right to marry. That is fundamental. And that everybody is entitled to it unless there's some good reason for the state to exclude it, exclude them. So why shouldn't we adopt the exact same understanding here? 
Well, you, you walk through the, those same cases that you just mentioned. Um, every single one of those talked about marriage in the context of men and women coming together and creating children. Well, they were interest. dealing then with men and women coming together. But the question was, well, there might be a black woman and a, and a, a black man and a white woman, or a black woman and a white man. And, and there was no inquiry into whether that was a traditional form of marriage. If there had been such an inquiry in this country, they would have come up pretty short. Right. Historically, that wasn't part of the tradition. And more importantly, invidious discrimination. It's not a part of the tradition. That's right. And the court said irrelevant that that's not a part of the tradition. Because because there's no good reason for it not to be part of the next tradition. Because invidious discrimination based on race had absolutely nothing to do with the state's interest in linking children to their biological. But loving was very clearly loving was very clearly not just a racial case; that it also was a a, a liberty case. Yes. And indeed, loving was exactly what this case is. It's a case which shows how liberty and, and equality are intertwined, wasn't it? No, because in loving, if the couple could not get married. They could not have, they could not enjoy private intimacy at all because it was subject to criminal prosecution and jail time. By 2015, legal arguments about substantive due process were very familiar. The purpose of oral arguments for the gay marriage issue was really to sway Justice Kennedy, which is why even though the current Supreme Court is technically called the Roberts Court because he's the Chief Justice, Many legal scholars call it the Kennedy Court. For two months, while Anthony Kennedy thought about his decision, Americans continued to debate the future of same-sex marriage. The image of all 50 states recognizing a same-sex couple's right to marry was an exciting possibility. As the Supreme Court term drew to a close without any news about the issue, more and more companies prepared their social media accounts to post messages of solidarity. And they came up with some pretty creative ways to use the iconic rainbow flag. Facebook, meanwhile, was poised to test its latest feature that would allow users to add rainbow flag filters to their profile photos, if the news went their way. Everyone was overcome with anticipation. Especially yours truly, because I happened to be studying for the California bar exam at the time and needed to know, at least academically speaking, whether the 14th Amendment protects same-sex marriage or not. You're listening to May It Please the Court. The decision in Obergefell v. Hodges came on June 26, 2015, a month before the bar exam, and 12 years to the day since the court had legalized homosexual conduct nationwide. Today, in one of the most momentous civil rights decisions in its history, the Supreme Court of the United States found gay and lesbian Americans have a constitutional right to marry. Cheers shook the courthouse steps. Licenses were issued and weddings performed in states where such marriages were outlawed. 
The vote in Obergefell versus Hodges was five to four. The dissents were vehement, led by Chief Justice John Roberts. But the majority, led by Justice Anthony Kennedy, found its justification in the 14th Amendment, written after the Civil War to extend equal protection under law to freed slaves. This court decided equal protection and due process also include same-sex couples. The final vote was five to four. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Anthony Kennedy delivered the opinion of the court. The court must hold, and now does hold, that the challenge bans on recognition are invalid. There may be an inclination, there is an inclination, in these cases to proceed with caution. It is most often through democracy that liberty is preserved and protected in our lives. Yet there's been substantial public deliberation over the past decades, and it is a central premise of our Constitution that fundamental rights depend on the outcome of no elections. The dynamic of our constitutional system is that individuals need not await legislative action before asserting the fundamental right. In the majority opinion and the most recent application of substantive due process, Justice Kennedy recognized that every American has the right to marry someone of the same sex, the same way they have the right to marry someone of a different race. He was joined by all four liberal justices, but there were also four dissenters, and each of them wrote his own separate opinion. Justice Alito argued that the Due Process Clause could only be used to protect liberties that are deeply rooted in our tradition. While heterosexual marriage is one such tradition, homosexual marriage is not. Justice Clarence Thomas, meanwhile, took the opportunity to repeat his disagreement with the substantive due process doctrine. If it were up to Justice Thomas, we would go back to the days when the due process clause was only used to ensure a fair procedure. What the Lochner Court did was a mistake, and what the Griswold Court did was a mistake to Justice Thomas. Roe, Lawrence, and Obergefell all come from the same wrong interpretation of the Constitution. The idea that the Due Process Clause stops the government from infringing on liberties that the justices determine. Justice Scalia, meanwhile, joined all the dissenting opinions. In his own, he once again argued that the court's decision had robbed Americans of the democratic process. Effectively, to Justice Scalia, the issue should have been resolved state by state. And it was true that the surge in same-sex marriage popularity had led to an overwhelming string of legalization around the country. Would the 11 states that still prohibited same-sex marriage in 2015 have come around eventually? Maybe, maybe not. But from Justice Scalia's perspective, it doesn't matter now because the court made that decision for them. But the main dissenting opinion came from Chief Justice Roberts. Unlike Thomas and Scalia, Chief Justice Roberts is not as fervently opposed to the doctrine of substantive due process, but really emphasizes that the court must exercise restraint and only recognize rights that have a history and tradition. He saw the gay rights issue as a Supreme Court taking on an activist role, and dictating social change, almost exactly like the court had done during the Lochner era over a century ago. 
So here is the current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court bringing our story full circle back to where it began. Ultimately, only one precedent supports the majority's interpretation of the Due Process Clause, Lochner versus New York. In that case, decided in 1905, the Court struck down a state law setting maximum hours for bakery employees. The Court did so based on its own conception of liberty, in particular its view that the Constitution protects, quote, a general right of an individual to be free in his own person. In the years after Lochner, the Court struck down nearly 200 other similar laws that the Court saw as a, quote, interference with the rights of the individual. Now, the Lochner era is now regarded as one of the most unprincipled periods in the Court's history. The problem with the Court's approach was not that the particular liberties the Court enshrined were undesirable, but that such an unrestrained enterprise had no basis in the Constitution. As Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes explained in his Lochner dissent, the Constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory. It is instead made for people of fundamentally differing views. Just so here. The Constitution is not intended to embody a particular theory of marriage because it is made for people of fundamentally different views. But a majority of the Chief Justice's colleagues argue that in this century, we are asking whether the government can infringe on personal private decisions. We're not talking about business interests anymore. Substantive due process reasoning has come a long way since Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes was around. So despite what Chief Justice Roberts and his fellow dissenters believe, the court now officially holds that each person has a fundamental right to privacy, which includes the right to marry whoever we want, no matter what race or sex, all because of the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. Social media went abuzz with the news. Rainbow flags swarmed everyone's social media feeds, and the news networks compiled a list of major corporations that had declared their support for the court's decision in one way or another. Meanwhile, President Obama held a press conference. This ruling is a victory for America. This decision affirms what millions of Americans already believe in their hearts. When all Americans are treated as equal, we are all more free. Shortly thereafter, he sent a tweet, ending it with the hashtag, Love Wins. Immediately, it became the highest trending hashtag of the day, as Americans celebrated and praised the justices in the majority. But as trendy as hashtags can be, a more accurate way to describe the case of Obergefell versus Hodges is that the Due Process Clause now protects every individual's right to marry someone of the same sex. Sadly, though, hashtag substantive due process wins is way too long and technical. And no matter how you look at it, over the next year, 123,000 same-sex couples in the United States got married. It was now their constitutional right. And now you understand why. So if anyone ever asks you why the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, 
you can tell them that it all started at the end of the Civil War, when Congress passed a 14th Amendment to ensure the equal protection of the laws for all citizens. This amendment included language that, years later, started to be used to interpret civil liberties, starting with a liberty to contract. At the turn of the 20th century, the arrests of a baker in New York set a chain of events in motion that led to 30 years of declaring any business regulation as unconstitutional. Until President FDR had enough and threatened to overhaul the entire judicial branch. After the switch in time that saved nine, the concept of substantive due process seemed like a dead legal doctrine. But it was revived in the 1960s when a woman named Estelle Griswold fought to legalize contraception, and in so doing, became responsible for the recognition of a fundamental right to privacy. A right which would later be used to ensure the freedom to marry someone of a different race, and a woman's freedom to choose whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. Despite intense opposition, this right has been upheld ever since, and just shortly into the new millennium, it was expanded to include the right to privately engage in homosexual activity. Finally, the Supreme Court tied it all together in the modern age by holding that the fundamental right to privacy protects an individual's right to marry another person of the same sex. In the United States, these liberties that we've discussed come from one sentence, the Due Process Clause. And it is partly because of that clause that the 14th Amendment is one of the most heavily litigated parts of the Constitution. But it is also partly because of another clause. The one that comes right after, the Equal Protection Clause. While due process has been responsible for important landmark cases that sometimes touched on the equality issue, the Equal Protection Clause was the focus in cases about affirmative action, discrimination based on race or sex, and was even responsible for both the start and end of segregation. But the story of that clause is a story for another time. For now, I hope you enjoyed our season about substantive due process. Please be sure to check out untwistthefacts.com and follow us on social media at untwistthefacts. My name is Alex Akavon, and thank you so much again for listening.